Welcome to War Machine. My name is Matt Baker, and in this episode, you'll hear a talk given not too long ago by our good friend and occasional co-conspirator Matt Baller. This was something presented at the Sustainability and Translation Conference in Vienna. I believe that took place last month, or recently anyway. Uh, the title of the talk is In Other Worlds. Get it? In Other Words, In Other Worlds. The Conundrum of Anthropocentrism in the Anthropocene. And it very much maps onto certain things I've been interested in as of late. Uh, the question of anthropocentrism, the somewhat explicit prohibition against it in academic circles, uh, on the one hand, you know, entirely justifiable to the extent that there is a tendency to recreate or conceive of god or or nature of animality or whatever in humanistic terms and you know as much as this is problematic i think it's nonetheless inescapable uh and i'm thinking of someone like uh, eduardo viveras de castro who i think makes a strong argument that the injunction against anthropomorphism is already one that's prescribed in anthropomorphic terms so there's really no escaping it. It's just the horizon of our own experience. And, you know, sure, we can do some work to decenter that. Uh, for example, in the work of Graham Harmon, uh, the speculative realists and so on. You know, in any case, framing that question in historical, geologic, racial terms, I think is what is it. Uh, it's, it it's what's at stake here. And there's just a lot to dig into. I'm, I'm hoping to have a follow-up conversation with Matt about this, along with Catherine Yusuf, who is the author of A Billion Black Anthropocenes, or None, which is referenced in Valor's talk, and which is a fantastic little volume in an equally fantastic series that includes contributions from Stephen Shapiro and, oh, what the fuck is his name? The, the Dark Deleuze guy. John a blank. Uh, anyway, yeah, I hope you enjoy this as much as I did, and I'll link to where you can find uh, Matt's work in the show notes. Peace. In a 2014 essay entitled Agency at the Time of the Anthropocene, Bruno Latour, a leading anthropologist of science, began to chart the contours of a political ecology capable of negotiating a future in which climate catastrophe was an inevitable feature. Latour is well known for his part in the development of actor network theory an attempt to reframe agency in terms which move beyond anthropocentric notions of intention to acknowledge the ways in which wildly diverse actors, both human and non-human, act upon each other in complex networks, problematizing established 
subject-object divides. As one of his examples, Latour engages John McPhee's account of the taming of the Mississippi River, in which the US Army Corps of Engineers are pitted against the might of the Mississippi, building and maintaining a dam which prevents the larger, higher river from cascading down into the smaller, deeper Atchafalaya distributary, thus preventing the flooding of the area west of New Orleans and the disruption of a vital US economic center. Latour exposes the language of agency baked into McPhee's account. Now, quote, the Corps was not in a political or moral position to kill the Atchafalaya. It had to feed it water. By the principles of nature, the more the Atchafalaya was given, the more it would want to take because it was the steeper stream. The more it was given, the deeper it would make its bed. The difference in level between the Atchafalaya and the Mississippi would continue to increase, magnifying the conditions for capture. The core would have to deal with that. The core would have to build something that they could give the Atchafalaya, a portion of the Mississippi, and at the same time prevent it from taking all. Latour's primary audience is the discipline of science studies, to whom he addresses his claim that, I quote, instead of always pointing out the danger of anthropomorphizing natural entities, we should be just as wary of avoiding the oddity of fusimorphizing them, that is, of giving them the shape of objects defined only by their causal antecedents. While one, uh, end quote, while one mistake is the excessive animation of matter, the other is its excessive deanimation. In McPhee's account, the army corps must negotiate with the rivers as political actors. They must deal with them, give but prevent from taking all. In her article, Theorizing Things, Building Worlds, Why the New Materialisms Deserve Literary Imagination, Babette Tischleder, a professor of North American studies, contrasts Latour's reading of the Mississippi with that of William Faulkner, who, in a quasi-autobiographical essay entitled Mississippi, describes the river as an old man. I quote, the old man, all his little contributing streams levied too along with him, and paying none of the dikes any heed at all when it suited his mood and fancy gathering water all the way from Montana to Pennsylvania every generation or so, and rolling it down the artificial gut of his victim's puny and baseless hoping, piling the water up, not fast, just inexorably, giving plenty of time to measure his crest and telegraph ahead, even warning of the exact day almost when he would enter the house and float the piano out of it and the pictures off the walls, and even remove the house itself if it were not securely fastened down. Tischleder writes as a literary critic who has published extensively on the power of objects in narrative. She writes, I quote, I propose that literature offers its own kind of theory. In its fictional and figural modes, it can, it can conjure material worlds as life world, as the setting of who and what we are, our daily existence and social identities, and the very stuff we use, produce, aspire to, invest in, 
value, discard, and are bound up with. End quote. Yet Tischleder nonetheless insists upon the necessity of anthropomorphism if the agency of objects is going to register in the human imagination. In the case of Faulkner, it is the perspective of the river, its lack of concern, its lack of malice, even while it casually plunders everything in its path, that enables its narration as a character whose agency can be interpreted as meaningful. For Tischleder, Latour's reading of McPhee ably demonstrates the distribution of agencies as various forces are required to negotiate a settlement. However, it is Faulkner's use of anthropomorphic language, which, and I quote, permits us to see what emanates from many different bodies, human, non-human, geological, virtual, digital, is not only agency, but subjectivity, end quote. Narrating the river as an old man, a quote again, enables both a recognition of the Mississippi's erratic personality and a misrecognition in that the river's attitude, whether perceived to be truculent or nonchalant, is by no means an attitude oriented towards the human, but the river's very own way of being in the world, end quote. This question foregrounds the conundrum of anthropocentrism in the Anthropocene. Both Latour and Tischleder frame their respective arguments in relation to the question of agency in the Anthropocene. Who has agency and what is its character is the central question for both. For Latour, an excess of anthropomorphism is an excess of subjectivity that preserves the subject-object divide of European thought, which is, for Latour, at the root of anthropogenic climate catastrophe. For Tischleder, failure to sufficiently anthropomorphize the non-human agents that continually construct our world is a failure of world-building imagination of the kind necessary to conceive of the agency in altogether different alternative terms. Thus, Tischleder and Latour share an objective, that of narrating the agency of non-human actors, but differ in their accounts of the language required to achieve it. Does the Anthropocene require the dethroning of the Anthropos from its claim to be the master of subjectivity, or does it, by contrast, by the very definition itself, require acknowledgement of the Anthropos as the master world builder into whose image the ignored subjects of the world must be translated in order to be recognized as fellow agents. For an alternative perspective on this conundrum, let me turn to the work of Catherine Yusuf, a professor of inhuman geography, who in A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None, argues that the Anthropocene as a geological descriptor erases the history of geology as a racialized praxis. The Anthropocene as a chronostratigraphic descriptor has been debated extensively over the last decade by the Anthropocene Working Group, a subdivision of a subdivision of the International Union of Geological Sciences, whose formal approval is still required for the Anthropocene to become accepted as the new geological epoch 
in which we find ourselves. Any new geological epoch requires clear evidence of a so-called golden spike, the lower boundary of a time period identifiable in sedimentation, and several dates have been under consideration. Yusuf demonstrates how each of these datings is tied to colonial history, and in particular, the racial divisions that structure it. Geology is a discipline, claims Yusuf, came into existence as a means to support the extractive praxis of colonial resource seeking. This praxis, right from its inception, has been tied to indigenous displacement and the extraction of certain populations in the form of chattel slavery, justified entirely on the basis of race. Thus, there is a geologics, to use Yusuf's term, that determines properties in order to determine property, a shared colonial extractive praxis, both in terms of mineral extraction and the extraction of black populations. Thus, Yusuf insists on the need for an inhuman geography to study the relationship between black and indigenous studies and geology as a means of exposing the material construction of both human and inhuman histories. It is the geologically constructed human, as expressed in the Anthropocene, that exposes the humanism of European colonialism as a racially constituted notion. The Anthropocene is a white Anthropocene, argues Yusuf, not metaphorically, but historically. The Anthropos is white. The deep places of the earth are black. Returning to Tischleder then, and the anthropomorphism of the old man, the question becomes not just whether the agency of the river can be narrated in human terms, but which vision of the human is captured by this anthropos? Who is this old man? Crucially, what is the racial construction of his identity? The question becomes all the more stark as a critique of Tischleder's reading, since race is a central theme to Faulkner's Mississippi. Indeed, between the two passages that Tischleder quotes as accounts of the old man is this short paragraph. The little rivers were diked too, but back here was the land of individualists, remnants and descendants of the tall men now taken to farming, and of Snopeses, who were more than individualists, they were Snopeses, so that where the owners of the thousand-acre plantations along the big river confederated as one man with sandbags and machines and their Negro tenants and wage hands to hold the sand boils and the cracks. Back here, the owner of the hundred or two hundred-acre farm patrolled his section of levee with a sandbag in one hand and his shotgun in the other, lest his upstream neighbor dynamite it to save his, the upstream neighbor's own. The Snopes, we are told just a few paragraphs uh, prior, joined the Ku Klux Klan in droves in response to the perceived threat of black economic rivalry. And here they are protecting their property with their Negro tenants and wage hands at the dangerous intersection of river and plantation, along with the sandbags and the machines, the inhuman ballast 
with which the Anthropos secures his being. Thus this old man river, who reshapes the very contours of the earth, casual, fluid, inexorable, this old man is an old white man. Those individualists, remnants and descendants of the tall men are the angry polygamous Protestants who show up earlier in Faulkner's tale, I quote, scattering his inexhaustible other seed in 300 miles of dusky bellies without avarice or compassion or forethought either, end quote. The very characteristics of disinterested power that Tischlader reaches for to describe the old man river. Rereading Faulkner with Yusuf requires the recognition that the anthropomorphic cannot be detached from the material construction of the anthropos, whose history is geologic and therefore racialized. However, there is perhaps an alternative to subjecting all life to the anthropos, the master world builder, an inhuman alternative. The anthropocentrism of the Anthropocene, states Yusuf, is a world-making practice, nominating one, the production of a mythic anthropos as geologic world-maker slash destroyer of worlds, and two, a material evolutionary narrative that reimagines human origins and endings within a geologic rather than an exclusively biological context. End quote. Yusuf's billion black anthropocenes is a way of resisting the master world-making of the anthropos while accepting the blurring of geologic and biologic boundaries. Thus Yusuf adopts the inhuman as a productive ontology, the moment of the anthropocene, while exposing the racialized extractive praxis that formed it also exposes just how dislocated from the earth the Anthropos, the colonial man of European humanism, has become. Thus the inhuman becomes, in the time of the Anthropocene, the very connection to the earth through which a future might materialize. With this uncertain possibility, Yusuf concludes her concise line of argument. So let me tentatively take up this challenge with respect to translation. To do this, I return to Latour, who concludes his 2014 article by introducing the notion of a metamorphic zone, something he later develops in more detail in Facing Gaia in 2017, describing it explicitly in terms of translation. For Latour, the actor networks for which he is well known have shapes, morphologies which shift in time. The Mississippi Atchafalaya Royal Army Corps negotiation is a negotiation of form. That is precisely the point of describing it. McPhee narrates that story as man versus nature, the Royal Army Corps versus the rivers. But Latour re-narrates it as a metamorphic zone in which a whole series of agents 
struggle for control of the shape of the Mississippi Delta. The negotiations of this metamorphic zone are made with force. The force of gravity, forces of momentum and speed, force handling such as tensile strength and load bearing, all of which structure the point at which the rivers and dam interact. The force of law, which requisitions resources for the Army Corps. Forces of multi-species migratory patterns and habitations, which affect the details of the river's courses. Forces of weather and climate, all the way from Montana to Pennsylvania to New Orleans. Indeed, the forces at work on the Mississippi Delta are by no means limited to its immediate geography. The extractive force of mineral and crude oil acquisition required to power Army Corps machinery. The force of the markets provided by investment capital for engineering innovations. The force of data packets in intelligent machine river analysis. The force of big data over Army Corps and US government decision making. And so on. And we could certainly go on. The interaction of these forces, as in the metamorphic zones of geology, produce new forms and indeed new worlds. The shape of the Mississippi Delta is continually produced by their interaction. For this notion of force as the basis of translation, Latour is indebted to Michel Serres, for whom, and I quote, uh, actually quoting Latour here, we indeed speak the language of the world provided that we learn to translate the animist, religion, religious, or mathematical versions from one another. Translation, Serres' great project, becomes the way of understanding by what we are attached and on what we depend, end quote. This is a view of translation which is clearly unable to accept the dominant discourse of interlingual translation as the theoretical foundation on which other translation theories must build, as is the case, I suggest, in much discourse on intersemiotic translation. By contrast, it begins with translation as a material negotiation that is sometimes rendered linguistically. It is thus a new materialist approach to translation in that it provides both for the distribution of agencies across multiple actors and also a distribution of subjectivities. The rivers do have a voice. However, that subjectivity is not the type of isolated fantasy subject of European humanism, and therefore the linguistic translation of the rivers will suffer if they render the rivers in that register. And this is, I suggest, a great weakness in Tischlader's use of Faulkner's old man. Yusuf's uncomfortable insistence on the inhuman provides an alternative means to approach this translation. To name an inhuman subject 
is to recognize the impossibility of individuation. It is also to acknowledge that meaning cannot be divorced from matter. For Yusuf, geology is not primarily words about the earth. It is a praxis where actions and words are inextricable. Similarly, Latour's metamorphic zone is not just words about form and force, but a site of actions and interactions which require translation. An inhuman ontology recognizes distributed subjectivities which function as material linguistic praxis. This material linguistic praxis is then, I suggest, a more accurate and appropriate way to conceive of world-making. Indeed, is not understanding by what we are attached and on what we, are, on what we depend the central concern of the concept of worlding. Inhuman world-making insists on a complex of subjectivities and acknowledges the translation between and within worlds that is integral to producing what matters. This is a translation process which is always ongoing and in which we can attempt to participate. It is not a process over which we could ever credibly claim ownership, much less control. It is only the anthropofantasy that imagines world-making as mastery. Thus, I suggest that in the shadow of the Anthropocene, perhaps the task is not to translate the non-human into the language and world of the Anthropos, but to participate in the translation of inhuman worlds through which new forms of both agency and subjectivity can materialize where translation from non-human object to human subject is supplanted by the translation of inhuman worlds as a material linguistic praxis, a work of innovation which requires writers of literature and geologists alike. Thank you very much. Thank you.